0: Well, hi. Third week in a row. What we're doing in this little tiny short mini-series of sermons is going through, I guess, the ethos of Scum of the Earth Church that I've really never talked about in detail before. So it's been there. We just never talked about it. We didn't talk about it when we were going through our mission statement back in the church in the city days. And it's just kind of there, always been assumed, and I thought, you know, maybe I should talk about those things. And so tonight's message is called Walking with Weirdos, um, because I think we're all weird. I'll give you a definition for weirdos. Ready? I love the way they pronounce it. W-E-E-R dash D-O-H. Weirdo. (laughs) Noun plural. Weirdos. It's informal. An odd person, comma, an eccentric person, comma, or an unconventional person. Which I think is a relative term, isn't it? I mean... If Scum of the Earth Church is a church for the left out, then who are the weird among us? (laughs) Those who wouldn't be left out, obviously. So, anyway, I'm going to start with a story. My wife doesn't remember the story, so I'm thinking, I haven't told it before, but it seems like I've told it before, but I'm going to start with a story from back in my Greek Orthodox boyhood. so, um, But I remember a time that stands out pretty vividly in my mind. It was the 1960s. Our little church had been founded by immigrants in the early 1900s, who, for the most part, had come to the USA to find work. And when they did... They worked really hard, normally working for anybody else who would hire them, be at the railroad or be at a restaurant, learn the trade, and then start your own business because that's what they came here to do was to prosper. I think my grandmother's house had dirt floors, and when she came here in the uh, 1920s, I mean, she came to marry a guy whom she had never met before. A Greek who had come over as a younger man, made some money and went back to the old country to get a bride through a friend of his who was marrying her sister. That's how things worked. Of course, after a while, they, they owned restaurants and they owned then restaurant supply companies, and then, you know, they would own, like my grandfather, a hat renovation shop. Back when men wore hats all the time and needed them cleaned and blocked, there was a place you could go and actually have that done. They came out looking spiffy, you know, brand new when he got done with them. I used to shine shoes for uh, customers at my grandfather's shop. He had a little one or two. Person shoeshine stand there when I was a kid. And that's how you learn the business. That's how you got ahead. Now, for the immigrants that came over and had these businesses of their own, it wasn't good enough for usually them just to hand off the business to their kids. They kept pushing education. You got to go to college. You got to go to graduate school. You need to be a doctor. You need to be a lawyer. You need to be more than what I am over here just working in the restaurant day in, day out. And so the little Greek community that I was a part of became actually quite prosperous. And the weird thing about Sundays in the Greek church is that when you came together to gather on a Sunday, you put on your Sunday best. Maybe it's a holdover from the old country where you don't go to church in the same clothes you work in or you go fishing in. You actually put on a nice, maybe the only clean set of clothes that you have, and you take the one bath a week that you would take on a Saturday night, and then Sunday morning you would go to church with your best on. It was probably cultural. Maybe it had something to do with uh, spiritually presenting your best before God, Maybe in antiquity that's where it came from. I don't know. But this whole idea of kind of dressing up on a Sunday persists even today. So uh, this is the outside of my old Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, There's the inside. If you can tell, that is like just simply stunningly gorgeous. It'd be something like having the mosaic bathroom that we have at our building except over the whole entire church <laughs> with gold highlights and things like that. There's the Oconostacion. So those are all paintings of uh, great saints. That That guy right there in the middle, that's the Archangel Michael. You can't see because of the lights that are bleeding onto the screen, but he had this fiery sword in his hand and this breastplate of of silver. And, you know, because I was bored out of my mind during the hours-long services, I would imagine the Archangel Michael coming out of the icon, (laughs) handing me the sword, (laughs) at which point I could fly, of course. I could battle any demons that came into the church. Who had stolen the priest's voice? That was my number one daydream inside the church. I was really bored, um, so yeah. And there was a big dome, and the top of that dome, there was actually an icon of Jesus looking down on you. You know, it was it was big, and he was looking down. He's like, you look up, you go, "Oh, there's Jesus. He's he's looking down on me." <laughs> literally, you know, literally, he's looking down on me. Like, Well, the incident that I'm thinking of that I want to talk to you about today occurred uh, somewhere in the middle of the 1960s, uh, maybe 68, right at the height of the racial riots that were occurring not only in our hometown in the old West End, but they were happening in Detroit, they were happening in Chicago. And I remember as a kid, like, standing in the pew, because we stood a lot, in the Orthodox Church, you, you always had to watch the old ladies to know when to sit down or when to stand up, when to do the sign of the cross. That was the way you figured that all out. And we were standing, and I remember all of a sudden all these adults were turning around looking, because someone had come in late or something, behind me and to my right. And so I turned and I looked, and this family of Mavri came in. Now, if you don't know what Mavri means in Greek, it means blacks. This family, this black African American family, came into our Greek and Greek American church. And um, I think I was feeling what was going on. I was a fairly sensitive kid. And for the most part, I think the people in my church were stunned. We were not used to having visitors. Who were just Americani, you know, Americans, and now all of a sudden we not only have Americani, we have Mavri Americani in the church, and it was like we didn't know what to do. Now they were dressed appropriately, even for the Orthodox Church. The man had a suit on with a tie. The lady was in a dark-colored dress. Um, you know, their, their kids were dressed well. It certainly wasn't anything about the external appearance. It was merely about their skin color because you knew by looking at them they weren't Greek. <laughs> I mean, it would have been the same if they had been Arab or if they had been, um, you know, I have this written down, but of course I'm way off my notes. It would have been the same if they had been Asian or American Indian or even even East Indian. the Greeks can tell. He looks Greek. she does not look Greek. <laughs> what do you think she is? Oh, I, th- I think she's Egyptian, that's what I think she is. She looks Egyptian to me, not Greek. Of course. There weren't a lot of mixed marriages going on. We were a purely insulated group of people. I mean, when my dad married an American knee woman, it was a mixed marriage. That's how everybody looked at it. So these people weren't supposed to be here because this is a church made up of the people who had given the world Socrates and Pericles Hippocrates, Demosthenes, and and, and Conies. Conies are the Coney Island hot dogs, (laughs) if you didn't know what those were. I mean, we were discovering geometry and philosophy, um, creating theater and poetry while the rest of the world was just trying to put food in its mouth, or so we thought really wasn't that way in the rest of the world, but we thought it was simply because they weren't Greek. They didn't have those things. Anyway, I don't think hardly anyone talked to that family that day. And I I would think later on, even as a child, why were they there? Why did they come? Maybe they came because they'd driven by the church building and they saw you know, three domes, two in front, one large one in the middle, and that was attractive enough. And then, you know, they wanted to know what the inside of the building looked like. Maybe because the neighborhood was changing, the place where the Greek Orthodox Church had been built was was now becoming a racially mixed neighborhood, and they were just looking for the closest church inside. Maybe they were just curious But I'm sure once they entered in, you know, and they would see the mosaics and the paintings. And, you know, it's it's inspiring, really. Draws your your eyes up heavenward. But I think we kind of killed it for them. I never saw them again. Any church that claims to exist for the glory of God and then is given the ability to create a space where that glory can be mirrored has a a responsibility from God, don't you think? Don't you think that the architecture of the people on the inside of the structure should be more spiritual, more loving, more God-honoring than the mere brick-and-mortar that encompasses them. And we've been given a beautiful structure to meet in. We, as a congregation of people, have been given a structure that we could never have afforded. You know that, right? You were there, a lot of you, when it all happened. How we act now and how we act when we get back inside that gift of God is going to be very important. That's what I think. Will we remain a church that accepts you no matter who you are? We used to have an old flyer. I think it had Chris Baker's profile on it. At the bottom it said, You can come and nobody will point at you and laugh. Nobody will point at you and laugh. Reese made that flyer. We had another one that Reese made. It said, the only place that nobody will make fun of you. And you may think to yourself, that's fairly easy for scum of the earth. But these kinds of tensions have been going on in the Christian church for thousands of years, and I think we'd be stupid to think that we are not going to be tempted to go in the same direction as so many churches before us. So that's why I'm calling this sermon tonight, Walking with Weirdos. The New Testament does have some stuff to say about this. We're going to look at that right now. Galatians chapter 3 is the first place we're going to go. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia. Now the church in Galatia has got a problem. And the problem is that there are two distinct groups of people who are vying for dominance inside the church each group wants to run things their way. One group were the Jewish Christians, people who had been brought up in Judaism and then come to Christ somewhere along the way. The other group were the Galatians, the Gentile Christians, who had no background in Judaism. And so the Jewish believers, some of them, thought that in order for the Galatian Christians, to actually have the full expression of what it meant to follow God, they had to become Jewish first. And that's where the controversy was centering. Paul writes this, and he writes the whole letter about this, but I'm taking a very, very small chunk. Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And you are heirs according to the promise. Now people in the early church had a problem with the Apostle Paul because he was breaking down this line that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. No doubt they were arguing that when Abraham got called and back in Genesis 12 as a man set apart from the rest of the world, that there needed to continue that set-apartedness, even in the confines of the church. Paul is saying that faith in Christ obliterates those distinctions, wipes them out. He sees in the gospel the seeds of a tree that will grow and to really change the world, change relationships between men and women in the church, change relationships between Jew and Gentile, and change relationships between slaves and their master. And fully 30% of the population in those times were slaves. Sometimes you were born into slavery. Sometimes you got bought into slavery. Sometimes you were captured in war and became a slave that way. 30%. The seeds of the destruction of slavery are sown right here in the early church. So, just remember, as much as you might want to talk about some Southern American congregations that opposed the end of segregation in this country. It was Christians from up north who had their roots in the early church who were just bringing forth the final growth and the fruit of the seeds that the Apostle Paul planted all this time ago. And not just the Apostle Paul. It goes back into the Old Testament from where he got his start. Back at that time, there was a Jewish prayer. It went something like this, spoken by by men. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a slave. And blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Do you think that maybe Paul is responding To just such a prayer in your face, kids, let me tell you what Jesus does. He obliterates all those lines. Paul set himself against anything that demanded some kind of conversion to a nationality or to a culture that might become an impediment to the gospel. Anything that might become an obstacle to you becoming a Christian, he just wanted to do away with. No one had to become a Jew to become a Christian. I mean, his point is, look, we're Jews. We haven't been able to follow the Mosaic Code. Obviously, we suck at it. Jesus has provided a way for us to be with God. Okay, time to go out with the old and in with the new. The new covenant, the blood of Jesus. And the culture of Jesus Christ is so much more important than any ethnic culture you might have. Any national culture you might have. It supersedes Mom, the flag, and apple pie. It supersedes the Greek fight for independence from the Muslim Turks and the Greek national anthem. It supersedes anything that claims you from your own nationality. Our first allegiance is always to God and to his people. I'm completely for liberation. I'm for liberation of slaves. I'm for liberation of women. I'm for liberation of culture. But only as long as liberation means slavery to Christ. And that way I'm quoting Scott McKnight. Agree with him there. We'll on to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, he echoes the same idea. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to you who were near. In other words, far away Gentiles, near Jews. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, and I would add, weirdos. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, Paul's emphasis on unity does not mean that we're all alike, all right? He's not asking for men to become women, for Jews to become Gentiles, or Gentiles to become Jews, or the both of them to become something else. I think it's kind of funny when I go to these Messianic congregations that are popping up here, there, and everywhere. It seems like most of the people are not Jewish. It's just interesting to me. Maybe they're Americans who have forgotten their heritage and looking for something to hold on to. Some kind, I don't know what I am. I'm Heinz 57. I have no heritage. And so I'm going to go with the heritage of the Jewish people. You know what? Fine. That's great. It's a great heritage. But you don't go back to being under the law once you've been set free from the law. You are now under Christ. This body theology that Paul talks about here and other places assumes both unity and diversity. People don't all of a sudden have the same abilities or the same sensibilities. That just doesn't happen. It's okay for us to be different. We just can't let those differences come between us and make us opposed to one another. That's why, for years, you have heard no preference from, at least from me, about whether you come from a Methodist background, or a Baptist background, or a Catholic background, or an Orthodox background, or a Baptist background, or a Presbyterian background, or a Lutheran background, or any other kind of background, Coptic background. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I love all of those traditions. I actually had some people say, really, Mike, you you love the Catholic tradition? You don't think that's, like, Antichrist? No, I don't think it's Antichrist. I think it's (laughs) pro-Christ. So that's what you're going to get from me. Obviously, there are abuses in every denomination out there. There are people who are masquerading as Christians, and they're not. We talked about that last week. But the barriers are down. In church planning circles, they have what they call the homogenous unit principle, which means that it's easier when you're planning a church to go to one particular group of people, like a tribe up in the hills of New Guinea, and you just work with that one tribe. You learn their one language, you learn their one set of customs, and you bring the gospel to them. That's the homogenous unit principle all right, kind of did sort of the same thing with scum. But what Paul is saying is that it can't stay that way. It can't stay that way. Eventually, it's got to become rich and poor. It's got to become black and white and brown. It's got to become married And single. It's got to become children and old people. It's got to become multicultural in some respects. If it's to reflect the one culture of the kingdom of God. Sometimes I think that back in my Orthodox Church days, uh, we were more concerned about being Greek than we were about being Orthodox. This is honestly, uh, I don't know if this is intentional, but in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, after Ian gets baptized into the church, he's in the back room with his fiancée, and he goes, I'm Greek now. No, that's not what baptism's about. (laughs) Is your lucky day to be baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. (laughs) Nikki, she's going to be your godmother. (laughs) You know that scene, that's one of the priceless scenes in that movie. It's like Dirty Harry meets... Costas Porticalis or something. So churches need to be smart enough, we need to be astute enough, to know when we're using culture properly, when we're adapting to culture, either properly or improperly, and when we must confront culture. We've got to be smart enough about those kinds of things. Church culture, as I said, does not equal Christianity. Church culture does not equal Christianity. All right? Not the same thing. Scum's church culture, not everything you need to know about being a Christian. And it's not the total experience of what it means to be in Christ just being part of Scum of the Earth Church. You have things to learn from other Christians in all parts of the world, and all sorts of flavors of Christians. We've got a little bit of an object lesson going on here with me just standing in front of you. Honestly, when, when people meet me and they find out that I'm scum of the earth's pastor, they get this weird look on their face. Like, scum of the earth? I go, yeah. Oh. And then I say, I'm not what you were expecting, am I? And they say, no. I say, what were you expecting? And they say something like, "Mm, I was expecting somebody maybe around 30, you know, tatted up, some gauges in his ears, shaved head maybe. I go, oh, yeah, I'm friends with those guys. <laughs> but let me just say this. Me not having a problem with anybody else's subculture at Scum of the Earth is not the same as me being friends with people in that subculture. It's not enough just to tolerate somebody else's subculture here at Scum if pretty much all you do is see them on a Sunday night, wave, say hello, and then leave again. As Christians, we're called to interact with each other. We're called to support each other. We're called to love people no matter where he or she comes from. So I want to talk a bit about what I see as the tensions that are experienced right now at Scum of the Earth Church between subcultures and the ones I think we're going to look at down the road. The first one's kind of weird. I think we've got a tension between married people and non-married people and people with kids. Because you can be either married or non married, right, in this culture and have children. There seems to be three separate cultures here at Scum of the Earth that are typified by those labels. In some ways, married people and single people have a lot in common um, in that they don't have children. And they're, you know, still about the same age. I I think there's a lot in common still. Kids seem to be the dividing line between those two groups of people, if you're the same age. Because all of a sudden you have to go home, and there's schedules. There's feeding schedules. There's sleeping schedules. Um, There's the stuff you forgot at home, the ointments and the diapers and, you know, the bottles and... All that stuff. I remember as a young guy being able to get up and leave my house within five minutes. Five minutes. I could leave, go anywhere. I got married, and that became 45. 45 minutes. If I wanted to go any place with my wife, I'd tell her 45 minutes ahead, hey, we want to leave at this time So what anything you gotta do to finish up what you're doing and get ready to go out the door, you know, and so that was a tough transition because I didn't get it right away. There's some yelling and you know what is the deal here? How come you can't be ready? With kids, I had to dig it up like an hour and a half. Okay, honey, in 90 minutes I wanna go. So we're gonna have to, whatever, you let me know what kids gotta be fed, what kids gotta be changed. You know, what we got to get out of the dryer and fold up and put in the bag. And, you know, I mean, I'll get the car warmed up because it's too cold outside. Just, I mean, it's like, holy moly, did my life change? And single people, very often, they don't get that. You know, they just don't get it. All they know is, my friends are gone. We used to hang out. We used to go to the Larimer Lounge. And now they won't come near the Larimer Lounge. Because it's sketchy and there's, you know, I mean, it's dirty and you're afraid you're going to get something. Anyway, um, bring it home to your wife or your kids. So, you know, I'm, there's, I'm just saying there's, there's tension there, right? I mean, one of the things married people is you've got to realize is that the people who are not married are feeling somewhat left behind. Not like the movie, but I mean just in the very temporal sense. Not like God has left them or anything like that, but you have. You know, they used to do stuff with you and you used to be their encourager or their confidant, and and now you're spending all this time with one other person. It's hard. It's hard to adjust. If you're the last one, you know, hanging around, doing the single thing. Hard. Married people at scum. I'm giving you a job, and the job is make sure you invite your single friends over for supper. All right, because that's one of the things that you do when you get married is you always try to eat together. That's why guys gain so much weight once they get married. They weren't thinking about food before, but they know if they want to have a relationship with their wives, they better sit down and talk. Right. Because other things in relationship fall apart if you're not talking. So you want to make sure you spend time. You know, a lot of wives spell love, T-I-M-E. It's the way it goes. So invite, you know, the dude who's eaten Top Ramen five days a week. Let him come over and have dinner with you sometime. By the time he leaves, your wife will be so grateful for you she be going, he just doesn't get it. I'm so glad I married you. You're, you know, you're coming along nicely. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, you know, if you're a girl and you just don't feel like going out dancing every night of the week, I mean, it's nice to be able to just go to somebody's house and sit down and watch a movie with them or even play with their kids when you're not having to babysit, you know? Have some adult conversation with those folks. And if you're a single parent, you might have it the toughest of all. And I just want to say both to you married people and single people, when it comes to the single parents, I mean, they spell love C H I L D C A R E. Child care. Child care. That's how they spell love. Give her, normally it's a her, give her a break. Just go over and watch the kid or kids for a while. Let her go out and go grocery shopping just by herself or go to the, you know, get her hair done or something. I mean, just give her time away by giving the gift to child care. That's how we can love and support each other. We're not just waving at each other on a Sunday. The second tension that I want to address is that you know we have a culture here at SCUM. We got several cultures here at SCUM, but invariably somebody comes to church, you know, my age, dressed uh, in, a, in a shirt and tie, or, or more likely dressed in khaki Dockers and a polo shirt, and they're going to be looked at askance. They're going to become the weirdos. And and the question is, are we going to be the church that displays the glory of God by being welcoming and inviting the weirdo in, or are we not? I mean, I do not ever wish to see a repeat of what I experienced as a boy at scum, except in a totally different context. This is a tough one. This is a tough one because our average age is pretty young. And, you know, coming up and talking to a woman who's old enough to be your mom, guys, may be a little uncomfortable, but it's okay. And girls, same goes for you coming up and striking up a conversation or sitting downstairs and having dinner next to a guy who looks like he's old enough to be your dad, who dresses the same way as your dad, may be somewhat uncomfortable. But it's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do. He's obliterating the lines that divide cultural Christians. We should all be one. And then there's other subcultures that are not even represented at Scum of the Earth in a very large way. I mean, there's a Latino culture. I mean, we're in the middle of a largely Latino neighborhood. We've got this building, right? Sooner or later, do you think people might just walk in to our building? Because they're driving by and they think it looks cool from the outside, and they saw we did all the stuff to it. How are we going to react to those guys, those cows? Are we going to do more than just tolerate their presence on a Sunday? And let me just say that even if you're a young dad or a young mom and you're sitting in a seat here at Scum of the Earth with your three-year-old and a guy who obviously lives outside, who hasn't been able to bathe for quite some time, who might be hungry and just coming off of being inebriated, sits next to you, how are you going to react Are we going to be the church of Jesus Christ that opens its arms to Jew and Gentile, stranger and weirdo, or are we not? Is our building going to be prettier and more appealing and more welcoming than the congregation that dwells inside of it? That's the question that we have to answer now and very soon. When Ska of the Old Church began, it was primarily a homogenous group. I mean, let's face it, most <laughs> of the people were from the Five Iron Frenzy Bible study, and most of them liked Ska, or Ska-core, or Ska-punk, whatever you want to call it. But later on, I remember, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but some people from other subcultures started showing up. And one of them was the, the goth subculture. Perhaps no one was as well known from that subculture as a young man that we called gothic Nathan, otherwise known as Nathan George. I took that picture of Nathan, I think, over at uh, what is now, what is that restaurant? I don't, I don't think that was at Bender's. That was at, huh? Cafe Netherworld. Cafe Netherworld, yes. Yeah. Cafe Netherworld. This is the weirdest thing. I did a search on Nathan George. This picture popped up that I took and that I played with in Photoshop. It popped up as a MySpace graphic like image that you can just use or something. It was the weirdest thing. And it said something about his winning smile. I go, Hey, Nathan lives on in the internet. This is awesome. He was obsessive compulsive, slightly paranoid, with a severe case of ADHD. He didn't really fit into a normal work world. He lived on assistance from the federal government because he could not hold what I would call a normal job. And with his free time, he became the self-styled Gothic evangelist to Capitol Hill. We called him Gothic Nathan because he had all the requisites, heavy use of eyeliner, loved the music, wore the dark clothes, had the fishnet sleeves, had the boots, had the skirt, went to the Onyx. He was known pretty much as the Jesus freak of that community. But the odd thing is, is that what people don't know is he didn't come from that Background. He was intentional about being a missionary to the goth scene in Denver. He came from a very clean cut, straight laced, almost militaristic family. He ran track in high school. He was like the Apostle Paul saying, to the Jews I become a Jew, to a Greek I become like the Greeks. To those not under the law I become like one not under the law, that I may win all those people to Christ. This was Gothic Nathan. He would send out support letters to a few people that he knew from his parents' generation. They were terrible support letters. I don't know how anybody supported him but he squeaked by on what he got from the government and what he got from a few supporters. And it was clear that he had become a goth for the sake of the goths. As a result of the friendships that Nathan made, Scum of the Earth has traditionally been a safe place for goths to show up. And this is the odd thing. This has happened several times (laughs) But the first time um, people from that subculture come to scum, and this happens with several subcultures, but they dress in the, as extreme a way as possible to get as big of a reaction as they possibly can. And the odd thing is, is that nobody really cares. <laughs> it's like, well, hi, how you been? Good to see you. Yeah. Hey, really like that hat. That's awesome. Those boots are perfect, man. Where did you get those? So far, I haven't had any, you know, polyvinyl dresses come in. But what I'm saying is if they did, so what? It's a safe place. Nobody will point at you and laugh. I'm going to end with a quote. I actually received it from uh, Kimberly MacArthur, whose husband was part of that goth scene for a number of years. I imagine it still is, if you can find it in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Maybe a tad difficult there. Just so you know, uh, they're coming back next weekend, and Kimberly will be preaching the next sermon Here at SCUM next week. So if you want to say hi to her, uh, they'll be with you back next week. But she sent me this. And what I'd like you to do is whenever you hear the word stranger here, I'd like you to substitute weirdo (laughs) in your head. According to Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of Great Britain, the Hebrew Bible in one verse commands that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in no fewer than 36 places does the Old Testament command us to love the stranger. Why would we do that? Because we have been strangers ourselves, the Bible says. Because if we have never been strangers, then that is because we have never left home. The people of Israel did leave home repeatedly. They knew what it was like to hear keys turning in locks and shutters being shut when they walked into a new town holding their thin children by the hand. They were used to knocking on the door of the house with the room for rent sign in the front yard and learning that the room had already been rented always, no matter how many doors they knocked on learning that the room had already been rented. You shall love the stranger, the weirdo, first of all, because you know what it is like to be a stranger, a weirdo, yourself. Second of all, you shall love the stranger because the stranger shows you God. Abraham and Sarah encountered God when they welcomed three strangers into their tent. Jacob encounters God when he stays up all night wrestling a stranger by the river Jabbok. When the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon, God appoints a Persian stranger named Cyrus to bring them home. In his first sermon in Luke's gospel, Jesus gets in a terrible trouble for pointing out that God sent Elijah to save a widow in Sidon and Elisha to heal a leper in Syria where there was no shortage of widows and lepers in Israel. Why should we love the stranger, the weirdo? Because God does. And that's from An Altar in the World by Barbara Brown Taylor. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us. That you would help us to be the church that you created us to be and to always have a place to welcome the weirdo. For we are weirdos that you have welcomed into your family forever. In Jesus' name, amen.